we hit our first year sales targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, and it was just complete mayhem. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads, and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Katie Burke, the Director of Talent and Culture here at HubSpot, and I'm joined today by Neil Blumenthal. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So just in case there's one single human being on the planet who hasn't heard of Warby Parker, give us a little bit of background on what the company is for those who might not be familiar. Uh, So Warby Parker is a relatively new company that designs and sells prescription glasses and sunglasses online and now in stores for a fraction of the price of what it would usually cost. So uh, we started with acetate frames, selling them for $95 with prescription lenses, whereas typically they would cost four or $500. And for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to someone in need. Uh, we're trying to build a company that uh, is that can scale, that can do good in the world and, and not charge a premium for it. Um, and, and that's our hope uh, that we can do that through glasses. So I love that. But I'm also super sick of paying realtor fees or getting my car fixed, but I don't somehow pull off the resources to completely and totally disrupt this industry. So walk us back to kind of how you actually got the idea and how you and your co-founder figured out that you could tackle this challenge in a really unique way. Sure. So I started Warby Parker with three friends, Jeff, Andy, and Dave, and we were all in business school. We were down in Philly um, at at Wharton, uh, and we were sitting chatting, and Dave had just lost a $700 pair of glasses in the seat pocket of an airplane right before school started. Uh, Jeff similarly had an older pair of very expensive glasses that he needed to replace but hadn't uh, now that he was a full-time student. Uh, And Andy was wondering why nobody sold glasses online, because we had seen category after category move online, whether it was Blue Nile selling engagement rings or Zappos selling shoes. I mean, categories that you'd think couldn't be sold online were now being sold online. Um, And prior to business school, I had run a nonprofit social enterprise called Vision Spring that would train low-income men and women to start their own businesses, giving eye exams and selling glasses in the developing world in places like India and Bangladesh. Uh, So we knew a little bit about the industry and what it actually costs to manufacture glasses. And it started this amazing conversation where it was like, hey, at the end of the day, why don't we design the frames that we love, sell it directly to customers online for a fraction of what they'd usually cost because we don't have to wholesale, so we're effectively cutting out the middleman. And it was one of those moments where the light bulbs go off. Uh, of course, the conversation was interrupted because we had to run to class. Um, but we ended up picking it up actually later that evening at about 2 in the morning. I emailed Jeff, Andy, and Dave. I was like, hey, that was a really interesting conversation. And at like 2.01, Dave responded. And then at like 2.02, uh, Andy responded. And then Jeff responded. Um, and, uh, it was just one of those feelings that you have in the gut that like, this is a good idea that we should pursue. 
That's really cool. And one of the things I think that's really interesting about your founding story is that you guys made a pact early on to work hard and stay friends. That sort of seems obvious in hindsight, but for most people, it's really not. Talk to us about how that happened and how that's kind of taken shape in spite of your massive growth. Are you guys still friends these days? Uh, we are still friends, uh, and we're actually all uh, going out this coming Saturday night. <laughs> um, but, you know, we had sort of all have seen those horror stories, right? Like you all see those like CNBC specials about how these, you know, founders built this amazing company, but now they hate each other and they're locked in a lawsuit. Um, and we didn't want that to happen to us. Um, so literally that day after we had that sort of very serendipitous conversation in, at school, um, we decided to go to a bar um, because I guess that's what friends do. <laughs> and uh, over a pint of yingling, we were having this conversation like, hey, this is a good idea. Should we pursue it? And we decided, hey, let's do it. And we promised each other two things. One was that we were going to bust our butts and work really hard on this. And even though we had been in jobs before where you worked crazy hours, we knew that starting your own business was, was different. Um, and uh, ultimately that we would be accountable to each other. Uh, so we really committed that we were going to work really hard. The second thing was that we were going to sort of ensure that we remain friends throughout the process. Um, and we knew that we had to do a lot more than just pay lip service to that because there had been people far smarter than us who had started businesses only to become enemies. So we thought about what are the processes that we need uh, to put in place to create a healthy working dynamic. Uh, and it sounds cheesy, but uh, during that first year, uh, we would literally go back to the same bar um, when we could, the same table and the same chairs, and on a monthly basis, uh, sort of go over, hey, you're doing this well, this can be improved. Hey, when you shoot me an email at three in the morning about my area of responsibility, I want to you know, reach through the computer screen and, and strangle you. Um, <laughs> and what that allowed us to do is uh, provide feedback to each other, allow um, situations that could have uh, sort of been exacerbated, we were able to sort of control them um, and, and just create a, a really sort of uh, functioning team. And we've been able to translate that now to Warby Parker, and now we're about 500 people, but we still have those same basic principles where we give each other feedback, we have sort of performance reviews, um, and we treat people with uh, respect and, and trust. That's really cool. For most people, I think beer would make feedback more painful, but it sounds like for you guys, it actually <laughs> loosened up the conversation a little bit. Well, it feels like, I don't know, maybe I'm a big wussy, but um, a, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s um, just aren't accustomed to giving direct feedback. So uh, I, maybe the beer gave us a little bit of liquid courage, but that direct feedback is, is just so critical um, to uh, avoid having, you know, passive uh, aggressiveness sort of uh, take over uh, an organization or, or a team. Um, and it allows people to constantly get, get better. Yeah, it's funny. We were having a similar conversation here. Our founder, Brian Halligan, who I know you know, calls it patty cake feedback. Basically, it's like, hey, you were super great, Neil. Just try and do a little bit more next year, which is categorically unhelpful and doesn't help you actually get better at anything. So we're definitely, definitely aligned on that front. 
Oh, I like the patty cake reference. We call it a shit sandwich. <laughs> yes, I think I think both are appropriate. But uh, but yes. So take us through Neil, if you don't mind, to fast forward to actually launching the business. When did you know it was something real? And obviously, you hit your first year, first year sales targets right out of the gate. Was there ever sort of an holy crap moment where you just took a step back and said, "I don't know if we can do this and meet this demand," that sort of thing? Walk us through kind of how it became uh, less of a conversation and more real. Yeah, I, you know, I think everybody thinks that these businesses just magically appear and, and, and take off like crazy. We were working on it for a year and a half before launch. Um, and while we believe in the lean startup methodology and um, sort of rapid prototyping, right, we were launching a brand so and it was a consumer product and one that involved sort of health and fashion. Uh, so we felt like that threshold for minimum viability had to be quite high. Um, and, and by that we mean right, we needed good product, we needed a uh, honed message, um, and, and we needed to you know, deliver on, on what we were promising. So we spent a year and a half sort of figuring out um, what the brand stood for, what our values were. Uh, it took us six months to come up with the name. We went through 2,000 different names. Uh, we um, thought through pricing, and the funny story is that we originally thought that we could price our glasses at $45. Uh, we went in and met with the head of the marketing department at Wharton, who was a pricing expert, and he looked at us and was like, you're crazy. Like, you can't tell me that you can sell a $500 product at $45. It's just outside of the realm of believability. And whatever you think your cost of goods are, they're going to double, um, and you're going to have uh, no margin with which to market with. So even if you could pull it off, nobody would know that you're alive. Um, so sure enough, we took that advice um, and, and uh, we ended up doing some surveying uh, of folks that we knew and we found that the willingness to purchase actually increased with price up until about $100, at which point it plateaued and came down. So we decided to go with a $95 price point. Uh, we thought $99 was too cheap um, and we didn't want to be perceived as a discount brand. Um, so, you know, we thought $95 made the most sense. Sure enough, when we ended up launching, yes, our cost of goods was indeed twice what we thought it would be because as you're building a product, you know, at every step of the way, you're like, you know what, I, I want to do the higher quality hinges that are five barrel um, hinges and the better quality screw or uh, more beautiful custom acetate, right? And that adds costs. Um, whereas you might not have had that in your original Excel model. Um, but every step, you know, we're sort of uh, learning and trying to move forward and, and be deliberate. Uh, since we were launching a fashion brand, we thought that was important to have credibility from the fashion press. So we uh, ended up hiring a fashion PR firm. We met with 40 different fashion PR firms and freelancers before deciding who to go with. Um, we were fortunate and we were featured in Vogue and GQ um, in February 2010 when we launched and that just uh, you know, helped us raise awareness immediately and you know, we hit our first year sales targets in three weeks, sold out our top 15 styles in four weeks and it was just complete mayhem. Um, we had a wait list of about 20,000 people. Uh, and when we launched the site, we actually didn't have any sold out functionality because who in their wildest dreams thinks that they're going to turn on uh, a website or start a business and immediately be sold out. So our first call um, was to our sort of outsourced front end developer to get some sort of sold out functionality on the website. So that way we didn't keep taking orders for frames that, uh, that we couldn't deliver. 
That's fantastic. That's a great first call to have to make, I guess. But the flip side of that, right, is that having 20,000 people on a wait list uh, sounds like an overnight success, although, as you said, it's a year and a half in the making and sort of a lot of sweat equity that went into it. But it could also be the beginning and end of a brand, right? It could be the last time people trust you or come back to you. And what you guys did was really invest, as you said, in deliberate growth and making sure that you communicated with those folks on the wait list, that you kind of earned their trust, got them their orders, that sort of thing. Talk about what that process looked like and how you used your brand value of empathy to communicate with those customers and not kind of turn them off after their first order. Yeah, it's funny. Your your true colors and how you sort of adhere to your own values are always tested in the most stressful uh, of times. Um, and it was uh, during this time, which again, it, it is, it's a high class problem, right? That you have too many orders. But if, uh, as you said, if we didn't handle it correctly, right, the brand would have immediately gone to zero. So the, the first thing was that there's always problems out of the gate. So we would just apologize profusely to people. We'd also explain what was going on because uh, we found that when our customers, especially early adopters, have context, they understand and they have far more patience than, than you think, right? If you treat people like smart human beings, <laughs> the, 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 they treat you well back. Um, some of our first hires, you know, had to uh, work with us to respond to all of these emails and calls that we were getting. I mean, we, we were effectively cutting class uh, we had a Google Voice account that would go to all of our cell phones and they'd all ring simultaneously and whoever answered it first got the customer on the phone. Um, but I remember uh, of our first three hires um, in that first week, uh, we ended up letting somebody go. Um, and uh, we let them go not because they weren't smart, not because they weren't sort of talented, but the tone of their emails and on their calls weren't friendly enough and we really wanted to build a brand that had this deep empathy and that just made people happy above all else um, and you know teaching somebody to to have that it, it's just very difficult to do so here in this moment where we literally had thousands of emails that we had to respond to hundreds of orders that we had to uh, process um, it, it Conventional wisdom would have been like, hey, you know what? Just keep this person on. Um, but you know, we didn't want to send out one more email that just wasn't overwhelmingly friendly. Absolutely. And customer service has been such an integral part of your business from day one. Where did your inspiration to prioritize that come from, and how do you screen for it in the interview process? So obviously, with you know your first employer, one of your first employees, you kind of saw the aftermath of their lack of kind of commitment on the customer service front. How do you screen for that now, so that your Warby Parker associates are are simply so committed to the customer service side of things? Um, we do a lot of reference checks to really understand, you know, is the friendliness or the demeanor that we're in, uh, often encountering on a on a first or second or final round interview is is genuine uh, we try to uh, look for past experiences that show that people are deeply empathetic uh, we really try to screen out entitlement and arrogance because we find that that is uh, sort of in marked contrast to being overwhelmingly friendly and apologetic and empathetic uh, we also find actually that arrogance and entitlement also impedes innovation, right? Because it, 
it, you need a certain amount of humility um, to ask lots of questions and to be open-minded that leads to creativity and, and innovation. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, we spend, we all spend a lot of time at work and you really want to hire people that you want to spend time with. And, and that is one of the litmus tests that, that we have here. Absolutely. And so what's the cardinal offense to interviewing at Warby Parker? What's the worst thing you can do in an interview? Ooh, um, I guess there's a few. One would be to check your phone. <laughs> uh, another would be to be rude to the, the receptionist or um, anybody that sort of you encounter uh, because uh, every sort of moment is a part uh, of our interview process. And this was actually something that we learned from Zappos uh, where um, Tony Shea and his team uh, would often get feedback from uh, you know, the, the driver of, of the bus, if it was a shuttle bus that was picking up candidates and bringing them to, to campus for interviews. I love that. It never gets old. If you're, if it's like the old adage, if you're not nice to the waitress, you're probably not, not a good person. So I think not a good date. So I think that's uh, that applies to interviews as well. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit, Neil, about your, your mission. So obviously, as you mentioned at the start of the show, Warby Parker has sort of a broader vision, not just of bringing uh, great business, but also of sort of a broader mission to giving back. Talk to us a little bit about how you included that in your business plan from the start and how that's changed, if at all, since you started. So while Jeff, Andy, Dave, and I um, all love glasses and we're super excited about the opportunity, um, I think what really um, gets us up in the morning is the ability to build an organization that has a positive impact. Um, and that was literally what we were thinking when we were trying to build a mission-driven organization, right? Like, how do we avoid for the rest of our lives ever wanting to roll over and hit the alarm, uh, hit, hit the snooze button on the alarm? Um, and when it comes to having a, a positive impact, like how do you do that in, in a for-profit model? Um, and I think it comes down to being stakeholder-centric. So um, thinking about your customers, your employees, the community at large, and the environment when you make decisions. Um, and, and that helps sort of uh, prevent um, bad decisions, and it helps um, you make good decisions that lead to positive impact. So uh, one of the things that we do that serves a broader community is for every pair of glasses we sell, we distribute one to someone in need. Um, and that was born out of our belief that it is crazy that um, 800 years since the invention of glasses, there are close to a billion people on the planet that don't have glasses that need them. Right? It, it's just, right, that's a failure of our species. So how can we best serve uh, the, those folks that need them. You know, one way could be, hey, let's just buy a bunch of glasses and distribute them for free. Uh, but then we thought, well, we should approach this problem with the same rigor um, and, and problem-solving uh, ability that we do um, trying to provide, you know, fashionable $500 glasses for $95. Um, and uh, the best way to approach this is through a market-based solution, and that's to partner with groups like Vision Spring, where I used to work, that train people, start their own businesses, distributing glasses in their communities. Um, first of all, something changes when you treat somebody as a value-conscious consumer rather than a needy beneficiary. You start designing according to their needs and, and wants. And I can tell you, having traveled a lot in the developing world, that, um, you know, 
somebody living in uh, sort of rural Guatemala um, behaves exactly like somebody in New York. And that is you care how you look, how your friends and your neighbors perceive you. Um, and you'd rather be blind than wear a, uh, a donated pair of 1970s cat eyes. Um, so we should respect people um, as fellow human beings and, and treat them with dignity and provide the products and services that they want. And also by providing the economic incentive to folks in these communities to serve, to provide glasses, right? You solve this over the long term as people lose their glasses, they break their glasses, their prescriptions change. Um, so that's something that's uh, really exciting uh, uh, about the approach that we take and our partner Vision Spring. So Warby Parker, um, every uh, month we tally up the number of glasses that we've sold, and then we make a cash donation to Vision Spring to help them procure that number of glasses. That's really cool. I think your commitment to that is, is remarkable. So your growth has been truly astounding. Now you're up over 100, you're in the hundreds of employees. What kind of things are the exact same from when you were four guys around a beer table and what are different? Um, so yeah, we're, we're about 500 people now. Um, I, I think one of the, the biggest differences is that we used to solve problems or challenges um, through brute force and by just throwing people at, um, at, at issues. And all it took was somebody who was uh, really smart um, and was just tenacious. Uh, and I think what we're finding at the scale that we're at now is that there's a certain level of, of complexity um, and it requires a more sort of deliberate approach to solve problems and figure out how to further scale. So that means roping in domain experts, right, rather than generalists. Um, it means uh, sort of pausing and dissecting um, a, a challenge and really uh, analyzing the data before jumping into, um, jumping into action. So you mentioned both the fashion PR firm and the Wharton professor as sort of providing some great insights as your business grew. Uh, what advice did you ignore? Um, I think the biggest piece of advice that we kept ignoring was people saying, hey, if people want to buy glasses online, somebody would already be doing it, um, right? There's always a bunch of sort of naysayers. Um, the, the most helpful advice that we ever received was, um, hey, you know, this is a long journey and there are going to be moments where you feel like you have to jump off a cliff um, in terms of, you know, making a giant leap of faith, whether you need to invest a lot of money into something or make uh, a do or die decision. And when that happens, take a step back and break down sort of that decision into a lot of smaller bite-sized pieces. And that sort of de-risks the process. So an example of that is early on people kept asking us, well, how are people gonna buy glasses online without trying them on? Uh, and we recognized that that was um, a sort of a major challenge that we needed to overcome. Uh, I think some folks might have been, okay, well, I'm gonna ignore that advice and I'm just gonna launch a website and sell glasses. And you know what, it, I, I shouldn't think about that. Uh, but we thought, you know, what, how do we, give people confidence in their um, sort of purchase decision. So one thing might be offering free shipping and free returns, right? Because that shows that we stand by our product. Um, another thing uh, would be, is there a technological solution to trying on glasses, 
So we found this cool software where you could upload a photo and virtually try on glasses. Um, and we tried that and um, we sort of had this moment that we're like, hey, you know what, this is cool, but does it really get people over the hurdle of buying glasses online? Um, and ultimately we came to the conclusion it probably won't. And that led us to a lot of reflection that eventually led to our this idea for a home try-on program where uh, customers can come to our website, they can select five pairs of frames, we ship it to them free of cost and they have five days to try them on at home before deciding to purchase or not. And that was this moment in sort of our business planning that really gave us the confidence to sort of invest our life savings and, and continue to move forward. And when did you know you had the home try-on right? Was it the first time you shipped it out and got customer feedback? Was it two months later? Help me understand kind of when you knew you got it right. Um, we knew that customers wanted it um, in the first basically 48 hours because we, we sold out of our home try-on inventory. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good um, indicator. Yeah, and GQ called us the Netflix of eyewear. Um, but, you know, still to this day, we're trying to optimize and making it easier and, and better for people to use. Um, so whether that's new functionality that's now on our website where if you select one pair of glasses for your home try-on, you can select a filler up button um, and uh, through an algorithm that we developed, we suggest sort of four additional pairs. Um, you know, little optimizations like that can uh, have a, a big impact on the customer experience and, and ultimately on conversion because we want to help people select the five best frames for them. That's great. So you've had a ton of success over the past several years. What's one thing you want Warby Parker to do better in the upcoming year? You know, it, it probably goes back to the earlier part of our conversation is um, I, as an organization, we're trying to get better and better at providing feedback to each other um, and uh, really continue to have direct conversations with one another um, to ensure that the best ideas are getting to the top um, that we're implementing them quickly and we're each sort of growing a, as individuals. That's great. Now a few fun ones. Uh, what was one of the names that didn't end up making it for Warby Parker? Ooh, uh, one was Umlaut um, and that it comes from Swedish. It's that sort of letter with like the U with the two dots on top. Um, it was also like a, a, an elu, which I think is a Chinese river dolphin. <laughs> we were all <laughs> over the place. Um, ultimately, um, it really came down to the brand architecture that we were building, which was uh, around uh, the literary life well-lived and uh, writers, because we thought writers uh, really represented um, uh, creativity and charting your own path. Uh, and being transformative and ultimately we were trying to transform this old stodgy uh, industry that had been ripping off people for a really long time. Fantastic. I think you made the right choice. And final <laughs> question, if you weren't running Warby Parker, what do you think you'd be doing now? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe continuing to work in the nonprofit world. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I was working in international development beforehand. Um, yeah, uh, I'd probably be, um, yeah, uh, uh, not sure. <laughs> no, that's great. That's perfect. Well, Neil, thanks so much for coming on. It was really great chatting with you. Really appreciate you making the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be awesome if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. Also, if you want to chat about this episode, share some feedback, or suggest future guests, you can join the discussion with a dedicated group that we created just for the show at inbound.org backslash growth. That's inbound.org backslash growth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. I saw a guy old school rollerblading yesterday. Oh, okay. I'm done. Hello? Hey, Neil. It's Katie Burke at HubSpot. How are you? Very good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for making the time.